can't believe we've reached the end of this lecture series. Some of you are saying to yourselves, uh, thank God we've reached the end of this lecture series. It just seems like it's been going for, and going and going for a long time. And that's because we had some pauses in between and all that, but it's crazy to think that we've, we've reached the end of it. I, I suppose we could have ended it last week, but uh, I don't know. I felt the Spirit leading me to just kind of flesh out more and more of the implications of what both soteriologies lead to. We need to talk about what they lead to ultimately. We have talked about those things to a degree, but not in the depth that we will today. So we are going to wrap up this lecture series that we've been doing called The Doctrines of Grace, Calvinism. We're going to discover or discuss, and really discover, but discuss the the broader implications of Arminianism and Calvinism and really discover what they lead to. Um, and here's the deal, and we've kind of said this throughout the course of many weeks, but our understanding of how God saves, our soteriology, because that's what that means, it's going to have a direct impact on really just about everything, especially ministry. Um, our understanding of salvation, our soteriology, it's going to shape what we call our ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is really the science or study of church, and really it deals with how we conduct our church services and ministries and events and all these sorts of things. So, so our understanding of, of salvation, our soteriology, it's going to shape our ecclesiology. It's going to shape our evangelism how we share the gospel with others, right? No doubt. So those are the two critical areas that, that our soteriological understanding are going to impact. And of course, you could also add to that our missiology. Missiology means how we do missions, but we won't talk about that a whole lot today because that really has to do with evangelism. But what we believe about how God saves, that's going to shape our ecclesiology, our understanding of church. It's going to shape our evangelism. It's going to have a direct impact on those things. If our soteriology is Arminian, then our, uh, if, it's, if it's Arminian, then our ecclesiology and our evangelism and just about everything else is going to be shaped and developed by that Arminianism. If our soteriology, our understanding of how God saves is Calvinistic, then what's going to happen? The opposite, right? Our ecclesiology, our evangelism, it's going to be shaped and developed by that Calvinism, by that understanding of, of how God saves. I think to put it more simply, because these technological terms can, or theological terms can hang us up, what we believe about salvation will shape how we program our church services, how we preach the Word, and ultimately how we propagate or spread the gospel. We have already established, I think, pretty well that Arminian soteriology is, is primarily man-centered by how it exalts human ability, by how it promotes free will and, and really diminishes the sovereignty of God. That means that, or this means, that the ecclesiology and the evangelism that flow from Arminian soteriology are going to be what? Very man-centered right? If you have a man-centered belief on how God saves, 
Everything else is going to be man-centered, especially your ecclesiology and your evangelism. And we have, I think, established from Scripture pretty well that uh, Calvinistic soteriology is the opposite of that. It's God-centered, right? By how it upholds total depravity and, and strongly emphasizes the absolute sovereignty of God in every area of salvation, from election to glorification, everything. It's all God. This, of course, means that the ecclesiology and evangelism that flow from Calvinistic soteriology are going to be what? God-centered. If you have man-centered something, it's going to lead to a bunch of man-centered stuff. If you have God-centered stuff, it's going to lead to God-centered stuff. This is the way it works. And this is what I want to talk about with you this morning. This is what I want to talk about. I'm going to give you just a, just a few or a couple main points that you can write down and, uh, and a whole bunch of sub-points and everything else, but just, just try to track with me as best you can. I think everyone in here, this, this message, this lecture is going to resonate with everyone in here, especially if you've been involved with any of the larger churches in the community, like I have. You're going to see this with your eyes. Let's go ahead and pray for God's help before we get to work. Father, we just lift up this time to you and ask for your grace and your tender mercy that you would instruct us and guide us and lead us and help us to understand how our beliefs about how you save are going to lead to all sorts of stuff. And if we have a biblical view of salvation, then we're going to be more biblical in the things that we do. If we don't, then we're not going to be very biblical. If we have a man-centered soteriology, we're going to have man-centered stuff following. If we have a God-centered soteriology, then we're going to have God-centered stuff following. So help us to understand this today, the logic of it. Help us to bring this lecture series to completion with these clear, I think, warnings on what one thing leads to. Help us to understand this and to grasp this today and uh, help me to uh, proclaim these things in a loving and kind and gracious way. I pray that, uh, Lord, against any kind of shouting and <laughs> me getting really fired up because these things, oh boy, they get me fired up. So help me, Lord, just to... Calvinism is about grace. And so if I'm a Calvinist, I should be gracious. Help me to be gracious. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. First point, kind of already pointed to this, but Arminian soteriology leads to man-centered ecclesiology, okay? That's our first point. Let me, let me describe how this works. Briefly talking about ecclesiology, I kind of pointed it out earlier, but it just generally in a general way refers to the study of the church. That's what ecclesiology is. It's a study of the church and a study of the origins of Christianity and its relationship to Jesus, um, you know, the church's role in salvation and the gospel, its, its polity, its discipline, its eschatology, its leadership, all of these things fall under the banner of ecclesiology. How many of you have heard the word ecclesiology before? Good. That's what ecclesiology is. It's the study of all of those things really pertaining to the church. And what I want to do is focus not on the entirety of ecclesiology, because that could be an entire series in itself, because, right, you're talking about church history and everything else. I just want to focus on one aspect of ecclesiology, and that would be polity, polity, 
What polity is, is when we talk about church polity, we're talking about the operations and functions of a church. We're, we're talking about how it conducts services and how it preaches and how it evangelizes and how it fellowships and how it does communion. We're talking polity is the functions of the church. You could even put leadership under that, the leadership structure, an elder board and those things. Those all fall under polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y, polity. We're talking about the church's functions, what it does during the week, what it does on the weekends, how it worships, the types of songs it sings, the, the messages that are preached, the, the programs and events and, and things like that that the church offers. That is the polity of a church. Arminianism says that Salvation is simply offered in Christ, right? That ultimately God made salvation available through Christ. That's Arminianism. And Arminianism is equally, well, He's offered it and it's there kind of floating in the flux, but it's up to us to do something with it and about it. It's up to us to embrace it. It's up to us to, to pray the prayer. It's up to us to embrace Christ and to believe in Christ and all these things. And that's essentially what Arminianism is. Salvation is merely offered, and it's up to us to do something with it. Since Arminians put salvation ultimately in the hands of people, and since I think the vast majority of Arminian people that I've known, and even myself as an Arminian early on, they want to see people saved big time. If you combine those two things, the idea that, well, salvation is merely offered and it's up to us to, to kind of uh, to embrace it and be saved, and if you combine that with the desire, the Arminian desire to see people get saved... And, and ultimately what they do is they develop a conviction, right? Okay, it's up to us to get saved, and we want to see people saved, so they develop a conviction there to pretty much do whatever is necessary to draw people into churches and to get a decision from them. That sound familiar? Does that not sound familiar? Does that not sound like what we're seeing all over our community and all over the country and all over the world? Look, if you believe that it's up to us to do something about it and you want to see people get saved, you're going to do whatever you can to get people saved. This combination of belief and conviction, right? Hey, I believe it's up to us and, and I want people to get saved. That combination, that conviction, it becomes the driving force within Arminian churches. And the first area to be impacted is guess what? Polity, right? Especially the weekend services. Especially the weekend services. And here's what happens. The weekend services in a church that thinks it's up to us and wants to see people get saved, an Arminian church, the weekend services are made more and more attractional in an effort to do what? Draw more and more people into those churches and to get those decisions. This is what happens. Everything over time is, is transformed for this general purpose. The aesthetics are modified to be attractional. The music is modified to be high energy or attractional. The preaching is modified, right, to be attractional, 
everything is essentially modified and reformed for that purpose of, hey, people can get saved. We're going to do everything we can to save them. So we're going to modify everything to that end. That's the Arminian mindset. And I want to talk about those three things for a moment, the aesthetics and, and the music and, and the preaching. I want to talk about those things. Let's start with the aesthetics. When we think of aesthetics, we're thinking of things that we see visually, right? Or we're talking about paint and decor and those sorts of things, right? Usually in these circles, because they want to make things very nice and very attractional, there's a lot of money invested in, in aesthetics. Churches fork out thousands and thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, to make the inside of their buildings look like Starbucks, right? Even this room kind of looks a little Starbucksy. Starbucks on the cheap. But they spend a lot. I mean, Starbucks is a nice environment, except they've switched to all like plywood furniture, so you can't sit there for long. But they, they make the inside of their buildings look like Starbucks. Some of them make the inside of their buildings look like Disneyland. I've been to a, a church or two that's done this, and it's, it's just like, wow, there's Goofy over there. Some of them have spent tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to make the inside of areas like their kids' area and these other things, like Hawaii. Some of them have, have spent gobs and gobs of money to make the uh, part of their church, if not the whole church, but usually part of the church where the teens and all that meet to make it look like a space station. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, are invested in aesthetics to make the church attractive to people, to outsiders, right? Some add bookstores. Some add coffee shops. Some have added gyms where you can go and pump iron. There is a church in town, and I don't want to pick on it only a little bit. <laughs> you, you know where it is, don't you? It's kind of over by my house, by Memorial, kind of like right across the street on the corner. <laughs> they added a gym to their church campus. A gym, a full gym, a Planet Fitness without the pizza. They had pizza, I might get a membership. What is the purpose in going to work out and eating pizza at the same time? It defeats it. I've always wondered about that with Planet Fitness. But this particular church, they've built a, a gym on their campus. And I uh, stumbled across an article just a week or two ago where that church has been battling the county in court over taxes, property taxes. Apparently, the county has been charging them property tax on their coffee shop and on their gym and even on their kids' space. Why? Because the county considers those things to be businesses, which is what they are, right? Those sorts of things don't fall under your 501c3 tax-exempt, right? They don't, you, you can't sell merchandise, you can't sell memberships under the banner of a charitable organization that conducts business. And so... This particular church got basically charged a couple hundred thousand dollars in, in backed-up property tax because they built businesses on their campus. During a court trial in February, 
senior associate pastor Mike Trenton, this is coming right out of the article, by the way, testified that in its efforts to attract new members, the church must compete with the myriad other interests people have outside of religion. This is the rationale they built for adding a gym and everything else. He said that the senior pastor, Glenn Berto's mission to win the city of Modesto is achieved in part by having attractions that fit the needs of members and potential new members outside of the house of worship. This is the rationale that was given. We've, they're essentially telling the county that they've built all this stuff, a gym, on their campus to draw people in and add to their membership role. What is this? This is Arminianism on steroids. You built a gym on a church campus to get people to come to your campus. Why? Because you believe salvation is merely offered and it's up to us to get people saved. We better be soul winners. We, why not just build Ringling Brothers on your campus? And what happens with the judge in this scenario? And I, don't, I don't want to be picking on the church. I'm just telling you, we're Arminian. This is what happens. The judge rules in favor of the church regarding the kids' space because that kids' space is used on the weekend services, but it ruled against them on the coffee shop and gym and gave them back only a portion of the money they've paid. And you know what? I, not to be opposed to the church there, but I agree. If you build businesses on your church campus, you ought to be paying taxes on it. And it's a terrible witness to the community that you have revenue streams on your church campus and now you're battling the county in court. What does that say to the unbelieving world? That doesn't make me want to go to that campus. It makes me want to criticize it. Look, I'm not opposed against having a nice campus. I like decent furniture. I like decor. Believe it or not, I like to decorate. I do. Shannon's like, you keep doing my job. Stop. I like to decorate. I like to go to art museums. I used to be a sculptor. I used to paint. I, I love visual things. I really do. I love it. So I, I'm, not, I'm not preaching against those things per se. I enjoy decorating and all of that, and I like a nice campus. Who doesn't like a... I don't want... You want to go worship the Lord in a slum? I mean, I would do it if I had to, no doubt, but I don't want to. We don't have to here. But I do not believe that Scripture supports spending lots and lots of money on aesthetics and gyms and all these other things in an effort to draw people into our churches. I don't think Scripture supports that at all. First of all, you need to just stop and think about what church is. Is church for believers or is church for unbelievers? It's for believers. We come here to worship our Lord. Unbelievers aren't, they don't worship the Lord. So we're going to take everything that we're about here and structure it and, and, and recreate it and mold it and shape it for the unbeliever? That's lunacy. We're supposed to come here to be equipped for the ministry of the gospel, and then we go out and reach out to unbelievers. And if believers stumble into our services, we're always preaching the gospel, but we don't have to make everything here attractional for them. You have, that falls under the banner of aesthetics, you also have expensive technology. Churches fork out thousands and thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars on sound boards, you know, the contraption back there that helps you make good sound. 
I, I know of a church that spent $240,000 on a soundboard. When that happened, my criticism was we could have probably planted five churches with that money and reached more people. $240,000 on a soundboard? Hmm. They spend millions of dollars on, on technology. You've got stage lighting that would rival any Pink Floyd show. The kids in here are going, what's a Pink Floyd? It's okay, Jimmy, you don't need to know. Smoke machines, because, you know, that, that's helpful. It's funny when you have the smoke machines, because usually the elderly people in there start coughing. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, they don't cause coughing. There's nothing in there, but it's the visual illusion, right? That means I have experience with smoke machines. I'm a DJ, I do. Smoke machines, expensive soundboards. You've got stage lighting with moving headlights. Some of those moving headlights, by the way, are $30,000 a piece. You've got high-definition projectors that cost an upwards of $100,000. You've got high-end video cameras. Some of the video productions that these churches in our community and all over put on are just unbelievable. It's Hollywood-level production. You've got LED screens. I went into a church one time that had, I would say there were probably 85-inch, a bank of nine of them on one wall, all programmed to show the same image. I can't even imagine what that cost. You've got tens of thousands of dollars being spent on websites. You, there's so much money has poured into the aesthetics and, and into technology. I, I think it's wise I do. I think it's wise to invest in technology that helps us get the gospel out there. I do. I think it's wise to do that. I have no problem with that. But I do not believe Scripture supports spending lots and lots and gobs of money on technology that will be used to draw lost people into our churches or to, really, entertain consumeristic Christians. That's not the way of the Lord. That's not scriptural. And yet, this is what we see all around us. All of this money being spent on gadgetry and, and, and all of these things. In the and here's, here's the deal. When you challenge it, you're told, we're trying to reach people. That's the rationale that's given. Now, how do I come? Well, I think that's wrong. Well, Pastor Phil, you don't want to reach people? What are you, Satan? I mean, right? If that's used as a defense, how do you overcome that? I would overcome it by saying you're using the wrong things to try to reach people. If you use consumerism, you get consumers. Is that what you want your church full of? What do you think we should do? Just have concrete floors and, you know, do worship with a trumpet? This idea that, hey, man, it's up to people and we want to reach people, and so we are going to lay down some serious fatbacks. And we are going to pimp out this campus, and we're going to have unbelievable technology, incredible art. We're going to do everything we can to make it as appealing as possible. That way, when people come onto the campus, they say, wow, that's a pretty amazing place. And maybe they'll stick around. Don't get me wrong, early churches invested. They did. First century Christians and churches invested. But they didn't invest in the things that churches today invest in. You might think, well, they didn't have the same technology. You know what? Every generation has its own particular technology. And in the first century, the technology was pretty advanced for first century. It's nothing like today, but they invested. First century Christians invested. 
but they didn't invest in the things that, that would aid numerical growth or generate memorable experiences. You've got a church in town that has gone full-blown with these aesthetics and everything else. They actually have a pastor on staff, and his title is Experience Pastor. What is an experienced pastor? I guess it's a pastor who generates experiences. Early Christians didn't give in to this bull. They invested, yes, big time, but not in these sorts of things to try to draw the masses to Solomon's portico, which is where they met. They invested in one another. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts 2.45. That's where they invested. They made sure that Bill had food. They made sure that Steve had shoes. They didn't make sure that Simon Peter had a Learjet. They, did, they invested wisely then. Lots of money is put into aesthetics. And, and you can start to see this at the time of Constantine when Christianity is legalized and made the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now all of a sudden you've got frescas being painted in the churches and million, I don't know how much money back then, probably millions being spent on frescas and mosaics and statuary. And I mean, you can see it. And what's driving some of that later on? Right? The same conviction just earlier than the title Arminianism was given. We had Pelagianism before Arminianism, and that was all about making the church attractional to get people to come into it. So let's, let's paint murals, let's do all this stuff and make it beautiful. Aesthetics. Secondly, you've got the music. You've got music. I was in, the, in it for the music, man. Remember that? I think that's Plankton if you've ever watched Spongebob. Yeah. Jesus taught the woman at the well that God is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, right? We studied that text about 27 years ago. John 4.24. Worshipping in spirit has to do with worshipping God from the heart, which is the seat of our emotions. It doesn't have to do with this fleshy muscle pumping and keeping me alive. It's just the center of who you are and the seat of your emotions. Worshiping in truth has to do with having a mind that is transformed or informed by Scripture, by the truths of Scripture. When we combine the two, we've got a mind that is, that is full of the wonderful truths of Scripture, you know, God's love for His people, the promises of God, the doctrines of grace. You've got a mind that's full of these things, what God has accomplished for us, the sovereignty of God in our salvation, how before in eternity past He chose us, and, and, and all these things. You're, you're just thinking about those things, those scriptural truths. And what happens is that, that knowledge, that brain, that mind that is full of these wonderful doctrines and these wonderful accomplishments on God's end, it sets our hearts aflame with love for God, and then we express this love for God through rejoicing and through praise and through thanksgiving and through singing and through giving our tithes and offerings and through even right living, right, to live for God. We're compelled by love for Him and His love for us to do that. This is true worship, what we're talking about here. 
To have a mind full of truth and a heart that's set ablaze in love for God and to express that in adoration and praise, that is true worship. And spiritual truth is, is not what lost people are interested in because they cannot discern spiritual truth, right? 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man has no taste or desire for truth because he's natural. He doesn't have the spirit. If the ultimate goal is to attract and draw lost people and get those decisions, something has to be done to the music, right? The style and substance, they're going to need to be changed so that the songs become more appealing and, and more singable and more emotionally impactful, right? You understand where I'm going here, right? you got to modify that music. If our mission is, hey, salvation's just offered, and we want to see people get saved, and we want lots of lost people to come here for that end, then we're going to have to modify the aesthetics and make them look like Starbucks, make it look like the world so we can get worldly people in here. And we're going to have to tamper and mess with the music. Why? Because the natural man has no taste for spiritual things, so we're going to have to take spiritual things out of the music, make it more appealing, make it more attractive. This is what happens, right? Doctrine and theological terms are removed from the music, from the songs, because they are viewed as unhelpful. Even the word God is removed from a great many of the songs because God is offensive to the unbeliever whom we want to fill our campus with. Names like Jesus, titles like Christ are removed from the music. Why? So that unbelieving seekers are not offended. Churches today in our very day are, are singing songs that a girlfriend could dedicate to her boyfriend. They're total, there's, there's total anonymity in the song. They're androgynous. You don't even know what's going on here. Who are we singing to? Who is this hymn? Not a hymn like what Bruce likes, but a hymn, H-I-M. Not the H-Y-M-N. Listen to a few lines from a popular worship song. It's got about 70 million views on YouTube. 70 million views. Here's, here's one of the lines. This is from the chorus. He is jealous for me. He loves like a hurricane. I am a tree. Bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions that are eclipsed by glory. And I realize just how beautiful you are. And how great your affections are for me. I'm pretty sure that the writer of this song got the lyrics from my seventh grade girlfriend who wrote me a poem. If you look at the entire song, it never mentions God or Jesus. You really don't know, especially for the unbeliever, you don't know, and that's the purpose, right? You don't know what's going on here. I mean, you've got wind, I don't know what that means, that's gas, and then you've got glory. So I think glory kind of means maybe we're talking about God here, but I'm not exactly sure. But we have wind before glory, so or wind before mercy. I'm thinking the author here, he probably had good intentions, but 
He must have figured that his audience, his listeners, his fans would just ultimately somehow figure these things out for themselves. I think we're singing about Jesus right now. Kind of seems like it because I heard the word mercy and, oh, look, the word him is capitalized. I don't know. And I just had this thought, leaving the names God and Jesus out and, and having the songs to where you don't really know exactly who's being sang about. Aren't you just super glad that the Bible is unafraid and uses names and uses titles? You just can't rely on today's modern worship stuff to actually nail down who you're singing to. There are near countless other worship songs that leave Jesus and other important truths out so that they do not offend those who are trying to sing them. A Muslim could sing some of these songs to Allah. But then again, Muslims are much more reverent than today's Christians. I doubt they would sing this swill in their mosques. Seriously. If the truth is removed from our worship songs, how are we going to worship God in spirit and in truth? How do we do that? How do we pull off what Jesus called true worship? We can't do it. If we remove the truth, this leaves only spirit, our emotions, which will need to be fueled by something. It's supposed to be truth that right sets our hearts aflame. It's supposed to be truth is the fuel for our emotions. That's the way it works in Scripture. But if we don't have truth, then we're going to have to fuel the emotions with something else, aren't we? And this is exactly what happens. What is used in place of truth to fuel people's emotions today in these churches? Technology and repetition. Dark rooms, colorful lighting, smoke, powerful video presentations, rock concert anthem style music with long repeating choruses. He loves me, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. It whips people into an emotional frenzy. And by the way, who's the he that loves me? These things literally, scientifically, medically, these, these visual things and, and that, that, that kind of high-energy music and the repetition, do you know what they do? They trigger dopamine. Dopamine is natural meth. It is. That's what meth targets. It releases dopamine and it makes you feel good. Dopamine is a powerful, powerful chemical in the mind. And what happens is that you get these dopamine dumps and it manufactures spirit. It manufactures emotions. And churches call what they're doing with these things, they call this worship. Boy, we went, and I tell you what, we went down to the corner over there and we worshiped the Lord this morning. You go look at the song list and there was really no truth in any of the songs. But I tell you what, the guitar solo was unbelievable. It was not of this world. Randy Rhodes was rolling in his grave. Wow, that was amazing. They called this worship. These are worship experiences. But you know what? It's not worship. That's not worship. Not according to Jesus. Not according to Scripture. If you remove the truth, there is no true worship. If you water down the truth, 
it's hardly true worship. If you remove spirit, the emotions, you don't get true worship. You have to have both. They're like two sides of the same coin or two different sides of the same coin. You got to have truth and then on the other side, you get spirit. You get emotions. You can't have one without the other. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a kind of worship happening in these flashy churches. There is a type of worship that's happening. It's the worship of man. That's the kind of worship that's happening. Right? It's man-centered worship. And that's why people feel so good when they go, and that's what keeps them coming back for more. They don't even know they're becoming addicted to dopamine. Because in these gatherings, there's so much dopamine dump happening in these people because of all the experience and everything that they're having, and yet there's no truth. Very little, if any, truth at all. It, it keeps people coming back for more. Even unbelievers, which is seemingly the goal. I've never met an unbeliever who doesn't like to feel good. Going to concerts is fun. Going to concerts can be thrilling. Especially if you get a backstage. I mean, Kelly, he's met the whole crew from Poison. I don't know how that's an accomplishment, but... Going to concerts is fun. It's thrilling. It's energizing, right? And that's what today's church services are like. They're like a rock concert. The difference is, when you go to church, the concert isn't about the band. It's about you. And that just heightens everything. I'm singing songs about me, and I like me. Think about the music there, how it's impacted by this soteriology. And then you've got, thirdly, the preaching. Jesus commissioned Peter to feed his lambs, to tend his sheep, and to feed his sheep, right? In John 21, 15, 16, and 17, you see the repetition there. He was really, this is where he's restoring Peter, and he really grinded Peter out here. Peter, do you love me? Uh, then, yes, you do. You say you do, then I want you to feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yeah, I just said I do. If you love me, I want you to tend my sheep. Do you love me? I just told you I love you. How many more times? And I want you to feed my sheep. He's restoring him after Peter fell away, right? When he denied Christ in the courtyard. And guess what? Pastors are the successors of Peter. They follow. It's not popes and bishops and all that that follow Peter. It's pastors. That means that pastors have received the exact same commissioning in other words, when Jesus commissioned Peter to feed his sheep, he was simultaneously commissioning every future pastor to perform the same task. It is the task of the pastor to feed the sheep of the Lord. Pastors are under-shepherds who feed the sheep of Christ. How do they feed the sheep of Christ? Through preaching the Word. We're talking about spiritual nourishment here by providing the sheep with the bread of life week in and week out. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're commissioned to do. Pastors have not been commissioned to feed the goats, unbelievers. They have been commissioned to feed the sheep. But today they act like they've been commissioned to feed the goats because their preaching is watered down and, and shallow and devoid of any real substance, devoid of doctrine, devoid of theological terminology. We don't want to mention the word propitiation. That'll spin people out. 
You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that most of today's preaching is geared toward unbelievers and or zygote Christians, right? It's so shallow. Well, you know, it's my responsibility, yeah, to feed the sheep, but I got to reach the lost too. No, it's your church's responsibility to reach the lost. Well, but no, it's mine and I got to put the cookies on the low, 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 low shelf so the little babies can get to it. Who are the babies? Well, they're the unbelievers who came because they joined our gym membership. And now they found their way into our service. Expository preaching has been replaced by pragmatic preaching. Here are six ways to improve your marriage. This is the kind of stuff you hear in these big man-centered Arminian churches. Instead of carefully walking people through Scripture and grounding them in rock-solid truth, today's pastors use the Bible as a self-help book to come up with solutions that will allegedly help people with God and marriage and sex and success and finances and relationships, help them with their work and sports and school and everything else that happens under the sun or moon. To keep from a Spending lost people who are lured in through aesthetics and feel-good worship services and, and awesome, powerful music. Today's pastors either avoid passages that deal with tough topics like sin, repentance, and judgment, and or they remove these words and concepts from their preaching altogether. Those things aren't helpful for reaching people. If you're not reaching, I mean... You're not, you're, part of the way that you reach people is by helping them understand they're sinners and they need the gospel. Not in these churches. We don't use the S word. We use the T word. What's the T word? Tithe. Boy, we push that. We have six videos every Sunday. These churches, because of the Arminianism behind everything, they... They always push God's love and grace and rarely, if ever, mention His holiness or His righteousness or His justice or any of those things. We don't want to talk about the negative or, or mean attributes of God. They, might, they make, literally, they make God, and I think Cameron's used this term, they make God seem like or come across as a lovesick teenager who's just dying to be in relationship with somebody. Man, I... I obliterated Jesus on the cross for crying out loud, somebody believe in Him so it's not wasted. As if God's ultimate purpose is to be accepted and loved by His creatures, whom He seemingly cannot live without. There's a, a line in another popular worship song that captures this line of thinking. It says, You didn't want heaven without us. So, Jesus, you brought heaven down. I guess for Jesus, according to this author, heaven just sucked because we weren't there. And to fix that, he decided to come down here because he just couldn't live without us. Does he not? I mean, this song makes Jesus sound like a lovesick teenager. I just got to have Sally. Like, Jesus is fleshy, he can't be alone. It makes, the, it makes it sound like the Son of God got tired of heaven because we weren't with Him there, so He came down here instead. Well, you can't be with me here, and I don't like being in heaven alone with just the Father and the Spirit, so guess what? I'll come down to you and bring heaven to you. 
That's what I get out of that line. And that's just silly. Prior to the incarnation, the Son of God had been with the Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. He was never alone, never lonely, never bored, never in need, did not need us, still does not need us. And heaven is perfectly suitable for Christ because He prepared it for Himself, just as He prepared hell for the devil and the demons. Genesis 1 and John 1, 3 and Colossians 1, 16, Matthew 25, verse 41. It is ridiculous to think that Jesus needs us and must have fellowship with us. This person who thinks this way doesn't understand the aseity of God. That God is absolutely independent and self-sustaining and self-existent. He is not a God who has needs like the idols of ancient culture. He is the God who gives life. He is the God who gives breath. He is the God who brings, gives breath. He is the God who brings death. He is the God who gives salvation. He is the God who judges. He is the God who gives every good and perfect gift. Bunch of verses behind that statement. Acts 17, 25, 1 Samuel 2, 6, Psalm 3, 8, Acts 17, 31, James 1, 17. I listened to a... Uh, Easter message from this last Easter, and uh, it was from a local church, and this was just the other day, and, and it was because one of the elders sent it to me and said, check this out. I was like, do you want to spin me out? Yes. Okay. Sent it to me, and, I, and, I, and I, I put it on the TV, and I started watching it, and here's what the pastor kept saying over and over and over. Jesus wants fellowship with you. Jesus wants fellowship with you. Jesus wants fellowship with you. So believe in Him. He wants fellowship with you. Kept saying this over and over and over. And I'm on the other end yelling at my TV, no, Jesus wants righteousness from us and only He can provide it. Without righteousness, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Matthew 5.20, we should all know that verse. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't want fellowship with people, but ultimately, that as the invitation is ridiculous. Talk about the righteousness that He requires and how He provides it, but you know, hey, whatever. So I'm watching this thing, and I'm hollering at the TV, and I'm sitting there like, oh man, why did He send me this? Rachel comes home right while I'm watching it, and she goes, why do you do, to your, why do, you do this to yourself? Why? And I said, I don't know. I didn't have an answer at that time. But today I have an answer, sermon illustration. I'm in the clear. Right. What am I saying here? What I'm saying is, is that Arminian churches believe that salvation is a choice, and this motivates them to make their campuses and worship services attractive to lost people. The songs they sing sound like top 40. They're catchy. And I, I remember it wasn't that long ago, there was a, a little brief moment there where every church band in America was trying to sound like you too. And I was like, don't screw up you too, please. And the preaching is watered down. It's self-help. What's happening? Are you familiar with TED Talks? That's what's being presented in churches today. They're TED Talks. They're not sermons. You've got TED-talky kind of preaching. 
Ultimately, what's happened is Arminian pastors have exchanged their commission to feed Christ's sheep for entertaining goats. That's what's happened. This is what Arminian soteriology leads to. Man-centered ecclesiology. Bad polity. Now, are all Arminian churches the same? Do they all sell out and deal in all this fluff? Well, I don't think so. There are, a, I guess, a few decent ones out there if you can stomach the Arminianism. But the vast majority of them do fall into this category. They have forsaken the commissioning, and they, they don't even view the church properly. The church isn't about Christ's people. It's about reaching the lost. That's the entirety of it. That is the mission of the church. That's not the church itself. But that's what they think, and that's what they believe. So visit almost any mainstream church in America, and it's, it's, you're going to see it all. Soft, lightened music, preaching that's more self-helpy than anything. There isn't any doctrine in there. Aesthetics, overboard, overload, technological advancement, lots of money spent on all of that. Not all Arminian churches are the same, but the vast majority of them do these things that I'm talking about here. We have to be fair. And I would say the vast majority of them here in the Bible Belt, the Central Valley of California, they're especially guilty of this. They really are. That's the first thing, right? Arminian soteriology leads to man-centered ecclesiology, a man-centered view of church, man-centered view of the services, man-centered preaching, man-centered music, man-centered everything. Secondly, Arminian soteriology leads to man-centered evangelism. Now, technically, evangelism falls under church polity. It does, because it's a function of the church, but I thought it was important enough to make a point for it on its own. Evangelism is critical. Charles Grandison Finney was an American Presbyterian minister. If you can believe that he was a Presbyterian, he was. He was a minister and he was a leader in the Second Great Awakening, which wasn't nearly as, a, as, as woke as the first one, spiritually. He was an Arminian evangelist. He was a staunch Arminian. In the 1830s, he developed what became known as the hot seat. As he preached during his revival meetings, he would begin by asking his audience if there were any present who wanted to accept Christ, and those who nodded or raised their hands or whatever, then those people would be removed from the broader congregation and placed in a cordoned off area called the hot seat. After he concluded his message, he would walk over to the hot seat area and he would write down and record the names of the people sitting there and then he would have those names published in the various religious newsletters that were in circulation. He would have them published as new Christians, new converts, new believers. Finney is regarded as the, that's what we just call him, Finney. Finney is regarded as the father of modern revivalism. He has become a hero in Pentecostal circles, not because of the, you know, the speaking in tongues or any of the other signs and wonders shenanigans, but because he is the first recorded American evangelist to actually do altar calls, that's what the hot seat is, allegedly leading thousands and thousands and thousands of people to Christ. Am I saying that there weren't some in there that probably were really converted? There probably was. Now, it was later discovered that Finney was actually Pelagian in his theology, 
because he started to deny original sin. Ah, we're not sinners. And he began to blame man's problems on man's environment and all those bad external influences and things that happen to people. Look, you're perfectly fine as you are. It's just all the garbage that's happened to you that's made you the way you are. He began teaching this sort of stuff a little later on in his career and teaching that people are essentially good and they are capable if they could just follow his instructions and rise above their difficult circumstances and accept Christ, then they would be saved and go to heaven. This is what he preached. You're all pretty much good, but you need Christ still. Finney was not an evangelistic or evangelical hero. He was a heretic who misled multitudes of hurting, desperate people. He preyed on people's emotions. He gave folks a false assurance of salvation through his invention, the hot seat or the altar call. Finney is the father of modern revivalism in that his evangelistic methods were adopted and employed by other ministers who admired his apparent success. Well, look at what Finney's doing. He got a whole bunch of people to move from the congregation into the hot seat. Maybe if we do what he does, we'll see the same results and we'll get a whole lot of people saved. This is what they thought, and those, message, those methods, they were passed down from literally one generation of pastors to the next, right? And then they were kind of modified over time to fit with the ever-changing religious environment. The hot seat evolved over time, and it became what? The sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer is undoubtedly the most utilized evangelistic tool or method in the history of the church. The sinner's prayer. Pray this little prayer and you'll be saved. It was popularized by the most popular, famous evangelist in probably church history, if not American church history, and that would be who? Billy Graham. The hot seat and sinner's prayer are Arminian inventions. The altar call is an Arminian invention. Arminians invented these things because they believe salvation is a choice, and it's their responsibility to get lost people to choose Christ. After preaching the gospel or something like the gospel, they ask their hearers if they'd like to choose Christ and be saved, and they lead them in the sinner's prayer, which symbolizes that choice. The preacher says, choose Christ, come to Christ, or choose Christ by praying this prayer, and you need, while you're praying this prayer, you need to follow my instruction and invite Christ into your heart. If you do this, you will be saved, you will go to heaven or sometimes they put it like this, make a decision by, uh, for Christ by praying this prayer and inviting Him into your heart. This is what they say. The sinner's prayer is man-centered because it's about man and for man, and it assures man that he will be saved if he repeats the prayer. <laughs> the sinner's prayer is in my opinion, one of the most evil and deceptive religious inventions ever concocted. It is, it is more dangerous than, than a, uh, the shoe bomber on a plane. It's more dangerous than jihad, any relig religious invention. Why? 
because it gives false assurance of salvation. People who prayed the sinner's prayer think they are saved because they prayed the prayer. They are trusting in that moment when they prayed that prayer. They are trusting in the sincerity of their hearts because every pastor who uses it always says, you better mean this in your heart, right? You better be sincere. They are trusting in that moment. They are trusting in the sincerity of their hearts at that moment, not in the one they allegedly prayed to. And when they hear the gospel later on, they feel no need to repent and believe because they already prayed the sinner's prayer. I did that, so I don't need to take any other action step here. They are trusting in that moment and in the sincerity of their hearts at that moment, not in Christ. The sinner's prayer becomes the object of their salvation, which keeps them from actually repenting and trusting in Christ. When they hear the gospel, they say, I'm good to go, I'm safe, because I already prayed the prayer and asked Jesus into my heart years ago. I've already done all this. I don't need to worry about that. That's what they say, and they think they're safe. And we have to ask the question, are they safe? Absolutely not. They are spiritually anesthetized. They are deceived. This is why Paul Washer facetiously quipped, the sinner's prayer has put more people in hell than anything else. The most dangerous thing an evangelist or preacher can do is hang the sinner's prayer on the back of a sermon, coax his listeners into repeating it, and then guarantee their salvation. That is suicide! And he thinks he's doing a good thing. He thinks he's a soul winner. But in reality, he could be damning people to hell. And what? This is what Arminian soteriology leads to. Man-centered evangelism, the sinner's prayer, and, and other man-made, man-centered, dangerous concoctions to try to get people to make a decision, to try to get people saved. Now, do all Arminian churches utilize the sinner's prayer? I don't know. I do know the vast majority of them in our community do. Pick a church, pick a weekend service, and you will likely hear some version of it. Hey, just pray this prayer at the end of the sermon, and you'll be good to go. Years ago, I think Cameron and I and maybe another elder or two, and some of the elders that aren't with us anymore, they've moved out of state or whatever, we went to a conference in Ripon, and uh, we, they had a Q&A thing. They had, I don't know, probably 500 people at this thing. They had a Q&A thing. And if you wanted to ask a question that Dr. Robert Godfrey would potentially answer, you wrote out your question, you put it in a box or whatever. And during the Q&A, they started pulling questions out. I couldn't believe it. It was like I hit the lottery. Two of my questions got asked and answered. And I was like, God loved me. Because at all the other events, he doesn't. Because nobody's ever gotten to my stupid questions. And uh, the question that I asked was, what is the, you know, this was years ago. I don't know, was it 2014 or something? It was a long time ago. And the question that I asked had something to do with what is really plaguing the church like, like big time. And at that time when I asked the question, I was, I was convinced that it was consumerism. And so he reads the question and the question was, is what is plaguing the church like so badly today and causing all the shenanigans is it consumerism? And then when he got to the question, it was read out loud, and he answered it. And his answer was, was pretty spectacular. He said, it's, yes, but 
not really, because there's something that comes before the consumerism, and that's really our evangelistic methods. He went into this whole spiel about how the church has given itself over to commercialized evangelism to draw people in and get them to make a decision. And, and I thought, wow, so consumerism is a symptom, right? And then, and then I was thinking about this last week. I, 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 if Godfrey were here, I'd have to correct him. We need to take it back before evangelism. We need to go to Arminianism. Because Arminianism leads to man-centered evangelism, which leads to man-centered consumerism. Amen? This was in 2014. He believed that the evangelistic methods adopted by the church, and he's talking about the sinner's prayer and all this shenanigans. That's what's plaguing the church and literally sweeping multitudes of unbelievers into the church. And they're not being converted. And I was just like, Thank God he answered my question. And he took it deeper than I was thinking at the time. Arminian soteriology leads to all this man-centered stuff. It does. Because you think that it's up to man. So we've got to get men saved. So let's, let's, just, let's make everything as appealing as possible as we can to men. Now we need to talk about Calvinistic soteriology for just a moment. We don't have to talk about it for long because we have been talking about it for nine weeks. <laughs> Guess what it leads to? The opposite. Oh, he's a big Calvinist. Here he goes, pushing his Calvinism. No, Calvinism's soteriology is God-centered, so it should lead to the opposite. It's not about being man-centered. It's about being God-centered, right? Calvinism is based on the premise and really the doctrinal truth that God is entirely sovereign over the salvation of lost people from beginning to end. That is our foundational belief that guides everything. It's all God, not all man. Calvinists believe that salvation is a choice, like the Arminian, but we believe it's God's choice, not man's. And when sinners come to Christ, when lost people come to Christ, it's because they've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It's because they're elect and they've been regenerated. It's because they've been drawn to Christ through irresistible grace after having a heart transplant. That's what we believe. That's what we've been talking about for week on week on week. That's what we believe. That's a God-centered view of salvation. Calvinists are committed to reaching the lost. This is what we get nailed for all the time. Well, you don't care about the lost. Of course we do. The, the greatest missionaries in church history were all Calvinists. We do care about reaching lost people. Just as Arminians are totally concerned with that, we are equally concerned, if not more in some ways. But we, as Calvinists, reject attractionalism. The belief that creating an appealing church and church campuses and, and, and great you know, worship services that are going to be appealing to the, to the average lost person and creating programs that are attractional, all these things. We are against attractionalism. We are not interested in trying to modify everything that we do to draw in or attract unbelievers. That's not why the church exists. We reject attractionalism, and we reject decisionism, the belief that a decision for Christ is tantamount to salvation. One too long ago when I was having a conversation with someone where another pastor in town where this predominant and very well-known and uh, very um, involved family at this church, uh, they were plugged into everything at the church, and all of a sudden they all went south, and they started talking about how they were atheists and all this stuff. 
And they left the church, and it was a big, ugly, stupid mess, and they were totally integrated. So when you have integrated people, all of a sudden they're talking about how they, they read the God delusion by, uh, what's his name, and, and uh, Hawkins, and, and then all of a sudden they're all atheists, and they're stirring up trouble at the church. They eventually leave the church. And I was talking to the pastor, and he said, well, I, I guess their decision for Christ wasn't a real decision. And I said, no, that, that, you're, you're thinking about it all wrong. Decision doesn't mean anything. I guess their decision just wasn't a real decision for Christ. No spiritually dead sinner can make a real decision for Christ. When are you going to start listening to the word here, pal? These people were never believers. They, yeah, they made a decision for Christ, but they also later decided not to follow Christ anymore. You know, we, we want to reach people, but we're not interested as Calvinists. We're not interested in attractionalism. We're not interested in decisionism. We don't preach at this church. We don't conduct our services to get people to make a decision for Christ. We don't do what we do here to make it attractional to unbelievers or to believers for that matter. And Calvinists love to worship God. We do. We love to worship God through song, and, but we understand what it means to worship Him in spirit and truth. Calvinists are more concerned about content than style. If a worship song lacks biblical truth, biblical content, or if it, if it promotes some kind of unbiblical theology, like, hey, you didn't want heaven without us, so you came down here. If it, if it promotes any of those things, guess what Calvinists won't do? They won't use those songs in their worship services because they don't teach truth. And how can you worship in spirit and in truth without truth? You can't. The Calvinist gets this. Calvinists are totally committed to reaching the lost. We just don't depend on attractionalism or decisionism or any of those things. And we're equally committed to educating the saints, to edifying the saints, to building up the saints in a most holy faith. That's my job above all other jobs. Calvinists preach the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27. So the saints are built up in holy faith. Jude chapter 1, verse 20. There's only one chapter. Calvinists are not fearful or worried about offending believers or unbelievers. Look, if we were worried about that, we wouldn't have done a series on Calvinism. You talk about risk. I dreamed the other night that people killed me for this. I literally did. Rachel said, are you going to tell the congregation? I said, no, that's stupid. I just told you. If, if, if we didn't, if we were concerned about offending people, we certainly wouldn't do a series on the doctrines of grace, which is totally antithetical to everything American evangelicalism. Calvinists aren't worried about offending. I mean, they don't want to offend people for no reason. Let the Word of God offend them. Maybe it'll save them. I'm not trying to deliberately offend people, but Calvinists aren't aren't worried about that and worried about shaping the content to avoid offense. The Calvinist is more concerned about the quality of his sermon and how it glorifies God's word and puts the true gospel out there. He's more concerned about that than he is about how people feel, especially that of an unbeliever who can't even understand the truth. Not fearful or worried about offending believers or unbelievers, so we refuse to skip over difficult texts. We refuse to avoid theological and doctrinal terms. We refuse to disregard important words like sin, like repentance, like judgment, like hell. 
in terms of evangelism, Calvinists trust in the sovereignty of God and do not rely on man-made, man-centered methods like the prayer of salvation or the sinner's prayer or the altar call. We don't rely on those mechanisms. You know what Calvinists do? They stick to the examples of Jesus and the apostles who preached the gospel and called for men and women to repent and believe. That's all they did. They didn't hang and follow me in this prayer on the end. All they said was, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's it. That's where they stopped. Jesus didn't go, okay, now, now pray this prayer and invite me into your heart. I'm right here, but somehow I'll come into your heart too. Never did that. Go read Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Acts Chapter 20, verses 20 to 21, it shows how the apostles and Jesus preached. And guess what else Calvinists do? They leave salvation in the hands of God, right? And they just preach the gospel and call for men and women to preach. And they also pray for God to save His people. That's it. Arminian... Soteriology leads to man-centered ecclesiology, man-centered evangelism. It leads to man-centered everything. I think you could, if you took the time, you could literally trace every modern-day shenanigan all the way to Arminianism, even Pentecostalism, even that that was born in, on Azusa Street in 1906. How, how can you say, Phil, that an entire... An entire um, uh, 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 I can't think of the word for it right now, an entire denomination, uh, you could trace all the way back to Arminianism. Well, what is the basic idea behind Pentecostalism? Look at all the supernatural things God is doing on our campus. Now come over here and check them out. What is that? Arminianism. They use these signs and wonders as attractions to try to get people to come to their campuses. You got to come and see what God's doing some woman in a wheelchair got healed last week. It was unbelievable. We actually found out a week later she was on Vicodin and felt good to start dancing. When the Vicodin wore off, she got back into her wheelchair. This is the shenanigans. Ah, the Vicodin part was added on. How can you say that Pentecostal... And first of all, the majority of Pentecostalism is Arminian. But we've got these wonderful continuation of these spiritual... Miracles and these things, you need to come and see, right? Attraction. What's the difference between trying to lure people in because of all these wonderful things God is allegedly doing over a nice campus and, and, and cool music that's attractive and, and preaching that you know, meets the pragmatic, practical needs of everyone these days. It's all the same stuff. And you could tie it all the way back to Arminianism. All of it goes back to Arminianism. You may not be aware of this. The students of Jacobus Arminius, remember how we were talking about them on week one? The remonstrants, the Arminians, those, that group of men that, that came to the Synod at Dort to literally change the Reformed Church of Holland's um, soteriology, right? They, hey, we want the Arminianism, we don't like the Calvinism, this is a we want it to be more focused on man than God. Those guys who came in 1618 and 1619 to challenge and transform the Church of Holland and therefore all other Reformed churches, and I've said this before, all the churches were Reformed then. They were part of the Reformation. The very men who came and argued for that and defended Arminianism and promoted Arminianism, every one of them fell away from the faith within a few years. Think about that. 
The very guys that developed this system and introduced it and then were called quacks and removed out of Holland, every one of them abandoned Christ over the next five years. They all walked away. You would just think that that truth and that historical fact would have enough impact on people to wake up and say, hey, maybe this thing that we've grabbed a hold of here is a farce. And, and today you have, what, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Arminian churches, millions upon millions upon millions of Arminian, quote-unquote, Christians in America, all around the world. They're everywhere. And the system that they've embraced wasn't even carried out by the men who designed it. They all fell away from Christ. Why? Why did they fall away from Christ? As John says in his first epistle, they were never actually part of us. You know what the Arminianism is? That's, that's, that's proof that they weren't part of us because it's not biblical. And they fell away. And yet today people are like, oh, no, it's all up to us. It's all up to us. Hey, modify the songs. Modify everything. We've got to get people in here and get them saved. No. Calvinistic soteriology leads to God-centered ecclesiology, God-centered evangelism, God-centered everything. Well, we don't execute it perfectly, but that's surely what we aim for. The ultimate goal of the Calvinist is to literally do what Scripture says, to glorify God in everything. He or she aims to glorify God in all things. That's what we're commanded to do in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, especially when we're talking about the salvation of lost sinners. Our precious tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. It glorifies God in salvation because it gives all the credit for salvation to God from start to finish. It does this, and it is biblical, and it is true. We have proven that over the course of many weeks. There is nothing out there like that precious flower, that tulip. There's nothing like it. There is no other soteriology in any system that even comes remotely close. Not even close. We began this lecture series with a, with a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. I think it's befitting that we, that we end with the same quote. He said, I have my own opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless we preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel unless we preach the sovereignty of God and His dispensation of grace, not unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor do I think that we can preach the gospel unless we base it on the special, particular, or limited redemption or limited atonement of His elect and chosen people which Christ wrought out upon the cross." 